1: At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
2: Welcome to the 303rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Brian Castleberry, author of the debut novel, Nine Shiny Objects. And stay tuned after the interview with Brian for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Nine Shiny Objects. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Brian Castleberry, author of the debut novel, Nine Shiny Objects. Brian, welcome to the
3: podcast. Thanks so much, Jeff.
2: Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Nine Shiny Objects yet, how would you describe your debut novel?
3: Well, it's set from 1947 to 1987. Um, It begins with the sighting of UFOs uh, in 1947 over the Cascade Mountains, um, and a young man who is kind of directionless um, deciding to head west uh, from Chicago and find out what they're all about. Um, And he ends up founding a group called the Seekers um, who set out to make a better world, a world that's equal for everyone um, of all race, creed, sexuality, gender. Um, And they try to found a town and that town gets, um, uh, well, there's a violent act that stops, (laughs) stops (laughs) uh, stops what they're trying to do. Um, And that that kind of traumatic moment happens relatively early in the book and kind of ripples out for a lot of different characters over that 40-year span. Um, It's got uh, nine different main characters that you follow uh, kind of in their individual lives uh, as you get the whole story.
2: So uh, you just mentioned that it covers 40 years and nine characters. Um, How was it for you in kind of interweaving both, uh, that stretch of time and that many characters.
3: Um, it was, it was a lot of work. (laughs) It was was also a lot of fun though. It was, it was a a lot of fun to do the research uh, and try to kind of pinpoint those, uh, specific, you know, cultural elements and pop culture elements that would, um, help to kind of populate the world in each one of the sections. Um, all the sections are divided by five years. So there's kind of a gap in, you know, what's happening in America during that time. Um, and uh, yeah, one of the big challenges that again with fun was kind of creating these individual lives for these characters. And then as I got to know them better, as I, as I wrote on them and I kind of wrote their individual story or, you know, their individual concerns and inner lives and everything, um, figuring out how they tied into that larger sweep of the story and what I wanted them to reveal about that larger sweep uh, of the story to the reader um, uh, versus, you know, what maybe they don't know all about. Uh, so some of the characters don't know don't know each other at all, actually. Um, um, others know one another. Uh, they all have different angles on the fact, um, different parts of the story they understand. Um, but that was a lot of fun for me, that kind of weaving together things, and especially in the revision process, going back and forth and deciding, well, you know, this character maybe doesn't need to know this yet and this other character will be the one that reveals that. Um, uh, yeah, but that was the kind of the balancing act, I guess, Mm -hmm. as I was writing.
2: And what kind of research did you do to get those pop culture references and to kind of show the passage of time?
3: Um, it was kind of different for different characters. Uh, in a way it's like kind of a kitchen sink method. I spent a lot of time, um, I would make sure to like watch films from the eras that I was dealing with um, and be kind of familiar with, you know, the rhythms of speech, uh, the kind of, you know, everyday concerns of of people uh, in these different times. Um, I also read uh, quite a few biographies set at different in different decades to get a sense of, you know, how people, you know, you know kind of key people during the time and, and and how they were behaving and what was important to them. Uh, luckily, you know, in the internet age, there's just so much research to do as far as finding, like in the 1970s, finding, you know, great vintage commercials or the 1980s or something like that. Um, or even just finding YouTube videos of people with their home movies from that, uh, that latter part of the book in the seventies and eighties, where I could easily find, um, you know, great visuals to help my imagination to kind of fill things out, um, one of the chapters near the end of the book is set in the eighties in Waterbury, Connecticut. And I got so lucky. I wanted to, I wanted to start that chapter in an arcade, an eighties arcade. Um, and I was looking for video of, uh, an eighties arcade just to kind of help myself fully imagine it and kind of fill it out. I'm old enough that I went to arcades in the eighties, but I was a little kid. Um, and, uh, so I wanted something to kind of help me along. And I, I actually stumbled across, uh, a, a a YouTube video of a particular arcade in Waterbury, Connecticut from the early eighties. So it just really helped me along to kind of fully visualize and see where my character would live. Um, so that in a way there's kind of like highbrow research as far as like, you know, digging into books and looking up specific things. And there's, I guess this kind of, you know, lower brow, just surfing the web and finding cool things that would fit just right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, do you remember the original idea that led you to write Nine Shiny Objects?
3: Yeah, you know, the, it kind of came at a couple of stages. I was working on something else with this title called called Nine Shiny Objects um, about a decade ago, um, that uh, that began originally from you know stumbling across uh, the initial news reports of flying saucers from from 1947. Uh, Kenneth Arnold, this ex. Navy pilot, um, he, he told, uh, newspaper reporters at the time that he saw nine shiny objects in the night sky. And I just, I love that image and I love that, uh, name. Um, and I got to writing a project that was much more about, um, UFOs in the 1950s and, you know, filled with my own, you know, kind of preteen obsession with, uh, uh, old sci-fi flicks. I used to watch all those, uh, movies on, on the UHF channels when I was, when I was younger. Um, that was one way that the project started when I came back to it and it became a completely different thing and, and really just retain a title and like one character. Um, uh, that was after the 2016 election when I was thinking a lot about, um, our cultures kind of seesawing between American cultures, kind of seesawing between like kind of rushes towards idealism and, you know, you know, creating a, a better union and all that, um, and how that's that's often followed by a kind of resistance and a turn in the other direction. I was thinking about that kind of uh, cultural conflict that we're almost always in um, in America. Uh, and I started thinking, you know, about uh, this longer time period, this stretch of the post-war period, um, you know, through the, you know, kind of baby boom period and into the, the Reagan era. Um, as kind of the time that I wanted to talk about that I wanted to look at and think about, um, you know, and, and think about those themes. Um, so it kind of put those two together, like, well, what happens if flying saucers get something started that leads to, you know, a way to think about, uh, these bigger cultural conflicts.
2: So have you considered at all of possibly going back and, and, uh, either resuscitating or somehow publishing that original Flying Saucer sci-fi
3: movies inspired uh, work? (laughs) I might have to. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to ask my my agent now and see what he thinks. (laughs) You you don't want to get typecast, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Some...
2: Some of the plot of Nine Shiny Objects reminded me of the Heaven's Gate cult. And I'm just curious, Mm -hmm. did you read or research Heaven's Gate while you were working on Nine Shiny Objects?
3: Yeah, I did. I I looked into a lot of those um, cult and kind of small religious movements um, uh, from throughout American history as I was kind of filling out, again, kind of in my my own imagination of, you know, how would this group work and what would it be like? Um, there was even an early, uh, there was even an early flying saucer cult from the early 1950s. That's very much like, um, this one that was led by a person named Marion Keech, um, that, uh, that, um, actually they, they actually led themselves to a hilltop to wait for a UFO to come and get them. Um, so that colored it, the, the, the heaven's gate group definitely. Um, you know, when I was young, I, uh, I remember watching the the Waco compound, um, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and all that, I was actually homesick, like the week that that happened. And, and, and so I watched it live on television without my parents around or anything. Um, and it really kind of, I feel like just kind of burned into my brain that, you know, this, the strangeness and the horror of, of that. Um, and yet naturally part of american culture that is that, that we often do this we have these kind of fringe movements for better or for worse you know some of them are out to just do good some of them are you know led by dangerous people um and 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 i guess that that you know that violence at, at the core of that waco experience is definitely in there <laughs> in my uh memory and, and it, it helped to color a lot of my thinking as well um
2: yeah, it, it is interesting that that that's such a fabric uh, woven into America. These kind of fringe beliefs and groups, um, and I would I would even dare say you're you're seeing it now with uh, the the various conspiracy theories about wearing masks. Um, and it's yeah. just it's, it's so to me, it's just odd that that's such a a part of the American experience.
3: It is. It really is. It's almost like a defining. It's one of those many defining qualities of our culture that's mysterious, but um, but definitely part of it. And you can almost begin to expect it. You know, yeah. With the math. So you just know, and you're just waiting for it to start. Exactly.
2: So, so what are your earliest memories of reading and books?
3: Oh wow! I you know I got really lucky. I feel like I, I grew up down a, a dirt road, um, in rural Oklahoma. Um, we were really poor. we were really broke all the time. Um, kind of moved around a lot. Um, when we were finally settled down this one dirt road that I think of as like my home, um, uh, my aunt, uh, my aunt Charla, um, <laughs> sent me a box of those, uh, uh, Classics for young readers. I don't know if you remember these. They're they're kind of like thick, square shaped books that were you know only a hundred page version with big type and pictures in them of classic um, books like the Count of Monte Cristo and you know Charles Dickens and uh, Three Musketeers all, all that stuff. Um, and I read all of those. I just like I just voraciously read them um, and. I, I always think of that as like that kind of changed my, my outlook on reading and on literature and what, uh, what writing does. Um, and when I started writing in my 20s, I often thought back to that. It's like, well, that was like the beginning there because <laughs> it was such a change for me to suddenly be just absorbed in books and thinking about um, kind of the power of story.
2: And and what prompted you to write your first stories and pursue publication?
3: Oh man, that's well, uh, oh, that's that's kind of a tougher question. One of the one of the things that got me started, I started um, back in the nineties. This is kind of embarrassing to admit, but back in the nineties, I uh, started hanging out at a coffee shop that was doing um, you know slam poetry, and I started I started doing that. Actually, that's kind of it just seemed really cool to me at the time. And I, I got into um, all the beatniks around that time. And so I was, uh, you know, 20, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, some, somewhere around there. Um, kid from, from the country that was suddenly reading all the beatniks and doing slam poetry in front of people. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it, it that I think really got me started in thinking, no, I really want to write. And I I, I I realized that what I wanted to do was write fiction. I just, I loved novels and I was always reading, you know, even, even then when I was kind of directionless, I was constantly reading, reading books. Um, and I ended up having to, I, I realized that I needed to go back to, um, back to college. Um, I'd started college and then dropped out right after I started it. So a few years had gone by and I realized that if I wanted to be serious about writing, I'm going to have to, Get some kind of degree, you know, get a job, maybe (laughs) something like that. Um, And, uh, and another big kind of lucky moment for me was when I started as an undergrad at Oklahoma state university, I had this teacher named Tony Graham, um, who was one of those just really tough creative writing teachers, just like, doesn't mind at all. Like hurting your feelings if they need to kind of creative writing teachers. (laughs) Um, uh, but, but also just super, super smart and really supportive when, when she saw something good. When she saw you doing the right thing on some level in your writing, she was really good about uh, helping you see it too. Um, and that really kind of supercharged me. That really changed me and, and got me really focused on fiction and devoted kind of my life to it um, other than any other thing I could be pursuing. Um, that really changed me.
2: Well, I know you teach creative writing. Do you take that same approach with your students? Oh,
3: no. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, no, I have a completely different philosophy. I, I kind of want them to, you know, I want them to grow on their own and, and try everything out. Um, and- you know how to
0: book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.
2: so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it
3: done. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm just too nice, I guess. I don't have the... Toughness. She she's an incredibly nice person, but she is tough.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so when you were working on nine shiny objects, did you share the the manuscript and what you were working on with anyone before you submitted it for publication?
3: Yeah, I did. I um I had, you know, I had some friends that read parts of it and, and the lucky thing about this was that, you know, it's written in these chapters that you know, can kind of stand on their own in a way. So it was kind of easy to like share one. If I was, I was like, I don't understand what to do with this one chapter and I could send it along and somebody could give me a little bit of feedback. Um, I got a lot of help from my, uh, my agent, Chad Liebel, uh, Jankle nesbit Nesbitt. I had, I had written a book previous to this that we'd sent out and that didn't get picked up and we felt really confident about it. Um, so the lucky thing for me was, as I was working on this book, I still had an agent who still wanted to support me and still wanted to work with me. Um, and he was just incredible at, at like reading and getting me feedback as I was working on it um, and helping to see my my vision, you know, and not, not curtailed in any way, but helping me to like, you know, make it even more its own thing. Um, he was really supportive.
2: And what was that earlier book about that you submitted and didn't end up getting... Um, picked up?
3: It was about um, a silent film director um, who goes off to uh, Germany for a little while and comes back to Hollywood and and kind of rises to fame um, before sound comes in. Um, he's a very kind of obsessive character um, who starts to kind of remake the world and build his own studio. <laughs> um, I may return to it or change things with it. <laughs> Add more <laughs> to it
2: sounds fun so so given that you teach writing uh what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels Mm.
3: yeah i you know one thing i i feel like every writer finds their own process that works best for them one thing i always like to tell folks is you know don't be afraid of writing messy um you know it's it's always great to have a schedule if you can do it if you have a a way to build a schedule where you write at the same time every day or something but since we know since all writers know they're going to have to revise and revise and revise um i feel like the best advice is to not worry as you're writing your first draft don't worry about it being perfect at the sentence level or at the story level um You know, one thing they don't, they often don't tell you is that even an entire novel that like 300, 400 pages, you're going to have to write that all over again, no matter what, a few times. (laughs) So if you, if you kind of allow that part of your brain to stop you up, that's saying, you know, this isn't perfect, or I don't know where the story is going, or I don't know this yet. um, That can really stop you. And I I feel like it's um, really important just to keep reminding yourself, you know, I'm going to have to do this all over again. So let's just. Keep writing, see where it goes, see what this character wants to do, see where my story's headed. Um, I can always change it later, you know. Um, it's not a basketball game, you know. <laughs> you're, not, you're not counting like every second on the clock has to be perfectly used um, to, to beat the other team. You really, you have time, you can make a lot of mistakes and go back.
2: So what writers inspire you and do you come back to for inspiration?
3: um there are a couple of you know classic writers that i go back to a lot now um uh, morrison is, is one for sure i feel like i read Sula every year <laughs> sometimes i teach it so i kind of have to but I, I just i'm always i'm endlessly amazed by the uh just you know incredibly well-structured novel that that is um and uh Saul bellow as well uh, is another kind of big classic writer that I go back to a lot. He's one of the writers that, that really taught me how to write from the beginning. Um, I actually, I wrote a piece about him for, for Lit Hub that, that went up a couple weeks ago. That's about just this thing. Um, that he's just kind of this foundational figure for me. Um, I read a lot of uh, contemporary uh, Latin American writers too. Um, there's a lot of great writers just kind of breaking the rules Um down south and, and showing new ways to tell stories. Um, uh, cont- the, there's some really great writers right now that that I love. I love uh, Megha Majumdar's, uh new book. I don't know if you've read that. Um, I haven't. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. Um, there's a really great book called Inheritors by Asako Sarazawa. Um, that's 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 just. Yeah, just just great, too. Um, there's a British novelist named Nicola Barker that that I love, and I'm always telling people to read Nicola Barker, and they look at me like, who? <laughs> um, so I have to get her plugged in there, too. Um, but yeah. so, so are you
2: working on another novel now?
3: Yeah, I'm kind of bouncing around between projects, uh, trying to figure out which one most... Um, most keeps me going and I, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'll, you know, I'll write on it for a week. I'll write on one project and then I'll start thinking about the other one and write on it for a while. <laughs> um, kind of go back and forth. Um, I, I'm often, um, nine shiny objects ends in Oklahoma where I'm from. Um, and I'm often, you know, drawn to try to write a book about Oklahoma set in Oklahoma entirely or mostly set in Oklahoma. Um, And so I'm kind of between a couple things and one is an Oklahoma book and another one is kind of a broad historical piece. So,
2: and how are you finding, um, how has the uh, pandemic impacted
3: your writing? Oh, wow. Yeah. That, it had a really big impact. I, I feel like all of us when, when this started thought, well, we've got a lot of time now, you know, we're all going to, Pull up and write novels or something, um, <laughs> and instead, it's actually made it. It's actually made it harder to write. It's actually made it made made me even more aware of like what it takes to keep myself going. Like how what do, what do I do to keep myself working? Because it's very easy to kind of stumble around the house, you know, checking Twitter and you know fretting <laughs> uh, <laughs> rather than uh, concentrating. Um, I found one thing that got me back in gear was starting to read a lot. Uh, it actually helped me get my mind off the news and, um, and back into the things that I really love. So, uh, that helped a lot, but it, it definitely really threw some wrenches into things. I, th- I think also writers need to be around people. Like we, we kind of have a myth about writers, you know, kind of that Stephen King myth of you're going to, you're going to hole up somewhere in a cabin and I guess go, go mad. Obviously that's usually what happens. But, um, <laughs> you know, we, we kind of have a sense of, you know, going off to some uh, island somewhere to write or something. But, but, yeah, we actually need to be around people, see other faces and kind of talk. And, um, and I think that that was an unexpected shock to a lot of writers that you're suddenly just left at home alone, really alone. So where
2: can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novel Nine Shiny Objects?
3: Uh, I've got a website, Um, and I'm putting up like, new reviews about the book uh, right now. We're getting things kind of added to it. But I've also got some links there to some of my other stories that have been published um, and some other stuff, too.
2: Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Brian Castleberry, author of the debut novel Nine Shiny Objects. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Brian, thanks for doing this interview.
3: Thank you, Jeff. This was great. Thanks. Great.
2: Now stay tuned for an excerpt from the audiobook of Nine Shiny Objects from Harper Audio, narrated by Allison Ryan and available wherever audiobooks are sold.
1: A Leap Oliver Danville, 1947 Before he saw the paper that night, before he had inherited its wrinkled pages at an otherwise empty table in a cafeteria. Oliver had been a washed-up stage actor, too tall and gangly to play the juvenile, and too scrawny to play the heavy, without the talent to cover anything in between. He'd heard it said he was handsome, but lately his hairline wasn't doing him any favors at auditions, let alone his tongue tripping down a staircase every time he opened his mouth. Only that morning, he'd flubbed the lines on a character without even a name, shoe salesman, a guy who would play foil to the romantic comedy banter of the two leads, marching in with a box to say, your ostrich skin boots, madam, with a lisp meant to be funny. The director had kept him on stage alone, with only a cigar-chomping prop man in the wings. A solid minute of silence crept over the place, Then the director had shouted from the center of the auditorium, We've got no place for you, chum. Go back to Winnipeg. Oliver had come to Sullivan's pool hall, knowing there was a 50-50 chance Necky would be there waiting for his money. But in order to get the money, he had to play the marks. And the marks played at Sullivan's because it sat right there on the corner of Randolph and Wells. Where every rube passing through Chicago found himself on a rainy Thursday looking around for City Hall. He could work, sure, if he could find a job. But the only thing he had experience in was acting. And after the morning's train wreck on stage, he felt he'd received a sign from on high that it was all over. Winnipeg? He didn't even know where the hell Winnipeg was. Only the last year of the war had felt like a break. Everywhere he went, a girl called out to him, lonely and in need of love, certain to find the dimple in his chin irresistible, his canned jokes funnier than anything she'd heard before, his prick a miracle. He saw many a framed picture turned to the wall in those days, and nobody stateside cared about his twisted left foot. But then Truman brought the boys home, and with all their shouting and elbows and swagger, they filled every bedroom in America, leaving him to his, up a crummy narrow stairwell smelling of dead cabbage. He spent his free time at Sullivan's Pool Hall after that, putting on his best act of losing so that he could come back and win double or nothing, chalking it all up to a fluke, your regular con. And on this day of all days, In the middle of oiling up a real dope from out of Oklahoma City, of all places, in walks Necky, stripped to his undershirt, half-shaved, a little swipe of blood on that long neck of his. Oliver's first thought was that Necky had come for him. He'd showed up to collect his $200. Knowing he wouldn't have anything to collect, he'd come to put a hole in him. But then the hubbub of greetings at the front of Sullivan's turned to gasps and shouts, and Neki reached up with both hands and grabbed his own throat and then fell out of view, just like that. And before Oliver could even shuffle forward for a look, someone had already said in a disbelieving voice, he's dead, they killed him. Well, eventful day for sure, Oliver left the room where he was, Twisting his pool cue in both hands, looking pale and sick as an old fish, and made for the back door, the alley, three blocks over, and up to the fourth floor to the room he was renting, where he left the light off and sat by the window, allowing the terror to strike him. They'd killed Necky, opened him up along that famous throat of his. And Oliver had seen the blood like it meant nothing at first, and then spurting between his fingers. He'd never witnessed anything like it. Most sickening, though, was the knowledge that his first thought hadn't been for Necky or Necky's wife or Necky's kids. No, none of those things. Necky stretched dead on the floor in Sullivan's meant Oliver was off the hook. He'd never have to pay that 200 back. It was looking at that Rube from Oklahoma City, so clearly frightened, that the miserable part occurred to him. He'd put a lousy price of 200 on a perfectly swell guy like Necky, who'd done so much for so many, who had half a dozen kids or something like that, who could tell a filthy joke better than anybody he knew. It was as if he'd handed the killer a knife. So he took it as another sign, a second sign, He was washed up as an actor for one, and he needed to get his life in order for two. When, after a couple hours, he followed his stomach to the automat cafeteria down the street, he wasn't planning on getting any more of them. He was only planning to go to church, or find a clean union job, or settle down and marry the first librarian he ran across. Really, whatever it took to become a useful member of society and wasn't at all expecting to slide into an empty booth with his chicken salad sandwich and coffee and apple pie and see that story, the one that would change everything, about the Navy pilot flying over the Cascade Range a week prior who said he saw lights flying in the night sky. Nine shiny objects that reminded him of tea saucers and how nobody but nobody could
0: explain them.